Hey, before I start the show, I just want to say a few things. Yesterday was obviously huge for Nashville. Tornadoes bounced around Middle Tennessee, and you know this already, I'm sure, but in case somehow you don't, one landed in Germantown, which is North Nashville, and then it worked its way over to East Nashville, the Five Points area, and Five Points and Main Street were just more or less devastated. If you're a Nashvillian, I hope that you're okay. I hope that your people are okay. If you're not okay, uh, I hope that things uh, are going to get better and I'm here for you and I'm thinking of you and you're in my heart. And I know that, you know, just because something physical uh, may not have happened doesn't mean that you are okay. There's lots of kinds of not okay. And I think a lot of people are in that place uh, and the range of devastation goes from the evident to the internal I'm hurting because I see Nashville hurting. I've lived here for one year and one week and never before has a place so quickly captivated me or captured my heart so quickly become my home. Never before have I been so quickly blessed with so many concerned neighbors, invested friends. Never before have I encountered so many beautiful strangers. I love this place. I love y'all. I am sorry to see you hurting. I'm also hurting because I'm not in the city. I'm spending the next two months between Nashville and Maine because of a few projects that I'm working on. And last night, I happened to be in Maine, and it's just killing me knowing I'm not there, that I'm not in the city. To know this thing that I love is hurting and that my home took a beating, I'm not there with it. And I'm not with my people. And honestly, I just fucking hate it. Nashville Demystified is inherently a show about Nashville history early on implicitly so (laughs) I was like maybe we'll sneak it in through some interviews (laughs) and now we're pretty explicit about it and one of the through lines of this city's history is that every half generation or so a big thing happens to the city and everyone comes together to work it out there have been tornadoes before and floods and absentee leaders and other disasters natural and otherwise but people have come together and they've worked it out and I've got friends who are helping neighbors clear debris and I've got friends who have debris that neighbors are helping clear out. And there are people who are putting up other people in their houses. And a lot of people are trying to find the ways that they can give everything they can right now. And it's a beautiful thing. And in the words of Mr. Rogers, in (laughs) the words of Mr. Rogers, I'm gonna, I don't remember the quote exactly. I can't believe I didn't look it up beforehand, but you know, he'll he'll forgive me for this one. Uh, When things are fucked, Look for the people who are trying to unfuck them. <laughs> oh, oh, rest in peace, Mr. Rogers. It's worth noting that there are a number of ways that folks are displaced after events like these, and they can find themselves in cycles of poverty and disarray, and they can get lost in the recovery process. So please give whatever you're able, and there are plenty of places to find out where to give and there are plenty of relief and rebuilding efforts to look into. You know, a lot of people I trust are suggesting uh, to give to the Community Foundation of Middle Nashville, which uh, sounds great to me. I myself am especially partial to Open Table Nashville, which works with the homeless and displaced people for whom catastrophic storms are especially devastating. Weather is terrifying when you don't have shelter, especially when the weather that's coming your way is just looking to tear apart everything in its path. 
Also, I'm going to be taking a quick break from the Music City Tales series next week to make room for reporting on this fucking tornado. And I'll also be talking about the one that touched down in 1998. I'd love to know what you saw uh, yesterday and or by the time this comes out the day before yesterday and what you're feeling right now and what you're inspired by in the face of it. Like, what are you seeing that gives you hope and what are you seeing that inspires you? please leave a voicemail at uh, 615-348-8165. Again, 615-348-8165. I'd love to hear from you and hear how you're doing and you know, hear what your experience has been. So we might also find out that there were more fatalities before the show goes live, but we know for sure that Albury Sexton and Michael Delfini were killed upon leaving Attaboy, which is where Dolphini had worked. And I didn't know them. I, I, I think I crossed paths with Dolphini a couple of times, uh, but these are not people I knew, but they are people who were just out living their life in Nashville, uh, working, being people in <laughs> East Nashville in, in relatively young in their mid-30s. And it's devastating whenever bad things happen to anyone, but it's just so resonant. It feels so close. So this episode is dedicated to them and it's dedicated to anyone who died, who we don't know the names of, and to anyone else who's going to be suffering at the hands of this thing for a long, indefinite amount of time. Okay, that's enough for me. Big love to y'all. You are in my heart, Nashville. You are my friends. You are my community. You are my home. Now, on to the show. So it's 1987, and there's this 15-year-old kid from East Nashville. For the purposes of this story, let's call him Robbie. Robbie's friend tells him that there are places you can hang out, meet guys, and make extra money by fooling around with them. And that's exactly what Robbie does. This goes on for months. Robbie is one of three kids, and his parents are strapped for cash, so his mom notices when he starts coming home with sneakers that there's no way they could afford. He's grounded for some trouble related to drinking, and his mom says that if he tells her where he's getting the money, then he can go free. It's clear to Robbie's mom that he's been drinking more, using more drugs, getting into more trouble, and so this is going to stop. That's why he's grounded. But she wants to know what's going on, and Robbie is bored as hell, so he finally spills. It's not entirely clear what Robbie tells her, or how this came to be. It's not clear if he gives any details, but what he does is he conveys the gist of what's been going on and she's devastated. Her response to him is that he's been ruined by these men, and now it's his turn to ruin them. Robbie's mother called the police, and then, one thing after another, she gave them permission to use Robbie as bait in a sting operation that took down dozens of men on Lower Broad. The men included, among others, a fourth grade teacher, a retired principal, a Cadillac salesman, and a Vanderbilt professor. At least one of the men tried to kill themselves after the sting. It led to the arrest of one store manager, who, beyond trying to engage Robbie, was found to be engaging a 13-year-old boy for sex. Many of the men pled guilty, though a lot of the cases would be in process for long durations considering the circumstances of using an actual teenage boy for bait. I should say, by the way, that this story, and many others in the episode, are pulled from Tennessean reporting that took place throughout the 80s. All the while, Robbie wasn't doing so hot. He developed a pretty bad drinking and drug problem, 
It was initially reported that he was hustling to support the habit, although his mother clarified that he developed these proclivities to cope with the hustle. While engaged in the sting operation, Robbie will get in trouble for helping his friend steal a purse from a woman at a mall. After all of this, he'll spend a good deal of his life in prison for various robberies. One takes place at a service merchandise. Another is an armed robbery in which his partner will get shot to death in front of him. Robbie goes to jail for almost the whole of his adult life. While he's in, his mother dies, relatively young, of undisclosed causes. By the time he gets out, there's a popular television drama about the city. The street where he'd charge men to fuck around, where he'd later serve as bait so he could ruin them for his mother, had become a hot spot for bachelorette parties. It is the epicenter of the so-called It City. So how the fuck did this happen? Oh, you should know that this is National Demystified, and I'm your host, Alex Steed. National Demystified is typically a show in which I get to know the city better by talking with the folks who live, work, agitate, and make art here. We are presently in the middle of a mini-series called Music City Tales from the 1980s. It's exactly what it sounds like. So far, we've covered Opryland, TNN, and Lower Broad of the early 80s. We're about to recap that episode. But first, you should know that National Demystified is brought to you by Knack Factory, a video and content production firm with offices here in the city. It's brought to you also by We Own This Town, a collection of podcasts made by Nashvillians. Finally, if you listen to podcasts regularly, that is, more than once, you should please like and subscribe wherever you do that. You should also leave a review, I guess. Somehow they help. I'm not sure how, but it's also, you know, it's just nice to read nice things about a thing you're doing. <laughs> so I'd, I'd appreciate it if you would leave a review. Okay, so back to the question at hand. How the fuck did this happen? Let's recap what's going on in Lower Broadway in the first half of the 1980s. By the time Nashville enters 1980, Lower Broad, the section of Broadway that runs from the river to 6th, which is now the bachelorette party capital of the universe, is more or less in shambles. As a librarian recently said to me, if you were downtown then, you were either a streetwalker, you were looking for one, or you were on the run. I don't know, that, like, that wasn't the official motto of Lower Broad, I imagine, but it's what that man told me the other day. This area was defined by some classic honky-tonks, some dodgy bars, some furniture stores that have been there for decades, pawn shops, a few haircutting schools, a number of adult book stores, porno theaters, and strip clubs. In last week's companion episode, we spent some time revisiting some of the most outrageous tales to emerge from one of those clubs, the Classic Cat 2. There are a number of homeless folks who congregated on Lower Broad and a number of others who just spent a lot of time uh, drinking and hanging out. And most Nashvillians stayed away, especially at night. Well, that's what everyone says. But there was enough of a market to keep the prostitutes, drug dealers, and porno theaters in business. And all of that money wasn't coming from the folks who were living down there. But I digress. The area was pocked with robberies, with shootouts, a number of situations in which men will come away telling the police that they were totally minding their own business when some hookers stole all of their money. Yes, of course, that checks out. There are a number of reasons that explain how the area found itself in this state. One, which we touch on in our Opryland episode, which I hope you'll check out if you have not already, is that the Opry will move out of its longtime home at the Ryman 
in the mid-70s to open up at the complex in Donaldson. It's relocated in part because the Ryan was in great disrepair and the work it required to get back to its old glory was considered too complicated and expensive. Redevelopment is hard. It was a lot easier and more profitable to start anew. Another reason was that for reasons both well-intended and some nefarious, you know, anti-government cutting uh, extra costs, institutions for the mentally ill were closing down and displacing a number of folks who needed some form of resources. Two-thirds of those who needed some form of help or another had been pushed onto the street by the 70s. This was also taking place at a time when soldiers were coming back from Vietnam and they were coming back not well uh, with no jobs and no places to go. Many of these folks ended up migrating to city centers and doing whatever they could to stay afloat. Parts of town that were less commercially viable tended to have difficulty attracting businesses, and so landlords would be less discerning about their tenants. Porn theaters who could pay rent in areas like these proliferated, and it all created this atmosphere that the rest of the folks in the city felt uncomfortable around, and they would usually stay away and tell you to stay away as well. There were a few signs of new development here and there, though growth was more or less stagnant. In 1982, the old spaghetti factory opened on 2nd, as did a few shops and office suites. Laurel's and Oyster Bar would open a bit later in the decade. In a Facebook exchange, the owner told me that she (laughs) used to shoot rats in the back alley because they were so plentiful. And I guess you could just shoot things. in alleys in the 1980s, which is one of my favorite pieces of esoteric city trivia. A few businesses on Lower Broad took advantage of some interest-free loans that were being offered through the city, and they took advantage of this to make renovations to facades of their buildings, making them uh, look a bit more historic. But overall growth was nothing substantial. There was, however, a repeated promise from Mayor Richard Fulton that the area would one day return to the glory that was once there. And you would hear this hopeful refrain from business owners at the time. There were also a few promising development efforts underway that Fulton tried like hell to usher into reality. The first is the revitalization of the riverfront, where Broadway meets the river. Fulton will oversee the formation of that area into a park. The second, which leans a bit less in the city and has more to do with its owners, is the renovation of the Ryman, which is at this point in shambles. This won't happen during Fulton's term, but it will be built upon the momentum of the mayor's crowning achievement as it relates to revitalization, which is the creation of a convention center. The conversation regarding the center is long and it's ongoing, and it'll take place for nearly a decade before the actual construction finally takes place. But by 1984, a plan is fully underway for a center to be built at 6th and Broadway. Businesses are condemned and relocated to make way for the new center, which Nashvillians are told will attract hundreds of thousands of people and fill the hole left by the Opry 10 years back. This will attract new businesses and development, and Broadway will be new again. Maybe folks will even stop calling it Lower Broad. Spoiler, real estate brand specialists did try to pull this one off, but it didn't quite stick. So it's worth diving into this effort a bit because it illustrates the way city-directed development efforts ultimately work, or maybe did work when this all took place. 
Sometime in the early 80s, Fulton's administration paid an out-of-state consultancy to tell them what they would need in order to attract a convention center, or I should say just attract overall development of the otherwise depressed area. I haven't seen this report, but one imagines it says something along the lines of have a downtown that's less intimidating to visitors (laughs) and maybe scale down on porno shops. So Fulton puts together a convention center commission that will help realize a lot of these goals. And this is run by respected business people. And this is back in the 1980s when everyone just trusted business people no matter what because they had suits. And if you had a suit, it meant you knew how to do things. Interestingly, Nick Gulas is on this commission. Gulas is a regional wrestling kingpin and makes a very funny, unexpected appearance in our episode about David Berman. When Gulas is noted uh, in the announcement about the formation of the commission, he is not talked about in proximity to his wrestling for some reason, (laughs) which is like the big thing he's known for. Um, And I'm just curious to know what his what his uh, participation in the council looks like. And I can't wait to learn more about that at some time in the near future. So now this commission exists and its focus is on realizing the convention center, but by extension, it's also looking out for ways to make the downtown more appealing to development generally. And so they start putting pressure on the landlords of porno theaters and strip clubs, and they're telling them, you know, you shouldn't renew your leases. You want the city to be better, don't you? But the landlords are like, these are the only people who will lease down here. And in some cases, they'll pay twice the asking price for rent. And this is kind of how it all goes down. The businessmen are there and they're uh, the picture of people who want revitalization and they know how to get there. And it's them versus everyone who stands in their way. And they help construct a narrative in which there are these good progressive actors who want businesses to grow and thrive. And there are the people who are looking to screw the whole thing up. There's the lower class and there are people who are either struggling to figure out how to make the system work for them and they just don't know how to do it anymore. And then there are those who've been failed by it entirely. And these are the people who are standing in the way of moving into the future. I mean, they didn't say that, (laughs) but it's pretty heavily implied. There's also what appears to be a parallel police escalation targeted toward downtown that Fulton claims is unrelated to his aspirational development. And there are numerous arrests of people on Lower Broad and challenges to liquor licenses. While strip clubs had already faced new rules targeted at reining them in in the late 70s, porn theaters will begin to experience more enforcement from codes people and sting operations as well. While many of the businesses that survived the 1980s will tout the fruits of the city as a whole during this time, many others will claim or report police harassment targeted towards them and their patrons. One woman would get beaten so badly by a police officer that was clearing out loiterers in front of a restaurant that she claims a beating triggered a miscarriage. A manager of merchants would go to jail on the very same roundup. Even Tootsie's would have its liquor license revoked for a month at the end of the decade. The porno theaters and strip clubs would get targeted for health code violations as, in an era before internet porn or even mass home video rental, people would go to these places to masturbate, have anonymous sex, or hook up with prostitutes. Using the prevention of the newly emerged and wholly terrifying AIDS virus as justification, the city became more strict about code enforcement as it related to health, The cleanup would make way for big business, sure, but it was also being carried out in the name of preserving public health. 
1985, there's a giant hole in the ground where the $160 million convention center will be by the next year before it's totally built. It is nearly fully booked. Lower Broad is showing more promise, yes, but it's still a mess. And so the center is built without any possibility of looking at Broadway so that convention goers won't chance seeing drunks, prostitutes, drug deals, or homeless people. There's an enormous police presence during the opening, which is a several-day festival in January of 1987. The construction of the center turns out to be a huge psychological turning point for the city. Up to this point, there are countless opinion pieces about how something has to be done about the area, but we start to see folks celebrate development for about a minute before immediately starting to worry about the preservation of historical establishments and the vibe of the city overall. We all know where this ends up, of course, but what's remarkable is how quickly the development all takes place. In at least one Tennessean piece from the first half of the decade, a furniture store owner is quoted as saying, the city will make a comeback. It will make a comeback someday. It may take 20 or 30 years, but it will happen. By 1987, the convention center is open, and a few years later, the Ryman is on its way to renovation. When Nashville develops, it develops so very, very fast. I think folks are seeing that happen now and thinking it feels accelerated and crazy, but it seems to be a part of the city history. Fulton wanted to run for a fourth term. He probably would have won if he did. I mean, he was just doing very, very well, but he was prevented from doing so. Uh, in, in 1987, he was replaced by Bill Boner. Boner held from East Nashville, and he'd been a bank executive before getting into elected office by way of the United States Congress. For his last two years as a congressman, he was subject of a DOJ corruption investigation, uh, specifically under scrutiny for his relationship with defense contractors. He would rack up $150,000 in debt fighting this, legal debts, I should say. And then early on into his mayorship, a consortium of businessmen agreed to pay off his debts. And that's that's like it. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> that's as deep as the reporting gets, as far as I can tell. <laughs> oh, we're going to go deeper into Bill Boner into a later episode, but he's just a character. And this is Bill. He's a mess. And in a way, though, I mean, he's, he's relatable in that he's disorganized and mediocre. And uh, it's easy to write him off as sleazy and gross as many will do over the course of his time in office. I'm tempted to do it a lot of the times that I read about him. You want to believe he's bad, but he's just a mess. Just a totally messy guy, maybe with bad tendencies. But he goes from earning his way into becoming a bank executive to becoming a congressman, which is just like being, you know, like basically one five hundredth of of, a, of an overall thing and it's easy to blend in and uh, screw around with proximity to wealth a little bit uh i don't know it he was he was cleared of the he was cleared of the investigation and the charges but uh, uh it's just easy to to be there and maybe not be noticed and have a photo up once in a while um and then you become mayor where it's like you're the guy in charge and people notice if it's not going well he appears to be wholly distracted by the attention of women generally. He just can't keep his eye on the prize at all. Uh, he bites off way more than he can actually chew, and he slowly, slowly and painfully goes down in flames. And it's like a sad trip, but it's also relatable on some level. We'd all like to believe that given the chance to shine, we would burn bright 
It's just not as sexy to imagine that there's a chance that we'd also end up pulling a fucking boner. (laughs) It's so brutal. Anyway, you'll recall from part one that Boner would, in 1984, uh, when he was a congressman, go undercover as a homeless person for Nashville Magazine. And I say Nashville Magazine because there's an exclamation point after Nashville. So he do this for a Nashville Magazine piece. This will take new meaning when you realize at this point he's being scrutinized for proximity to special interest groups right around at the same time. And that uh, years later, he'll be noted as one of the, quote, sleaziest politicians in the Reagan era in a, a national publication. It feels, you know, when you know all this, like a, it's a move to boost his image. Nashville was more than anything a booster publication for the city. It's really cool time capsule and they're available for view of the special collections at the library. But it's like it's not like hard hitting stuff. It's not like he was out there like, let's figure out homelessness. It really feels like the photo op that it actually turned out to be. And, you know, that's just what it was. There's an AP piece that came out uh, based on the uh, quote experiment that makes Boner seem real deep, but he just doesn't come to any conclusions that are, are worth a whole lot. But as a result of all this, anytime Boner spoke, uh, particularly on the campaign trail, about the issues relating uh, to folks having a hard time, especially in the lower Broadway area, he was able to spin that photo up into the illusion of experience. <laughs> he'd say, you know, based on my time out on the street, and he'd just speak absolutely unironically about that time because it was the it was the 1980s. Don't forget, though, anytime he spoke with that authority, this was a man who was a bank executive, who was then a congressman, who was investigated by the Justice Department, and then uh, to get out of his legal fees was given $150,000 by wealthy businessmen. When it came to Lower Broadway and the issues faced by those most affected there, the homeless, Boner actually pitched a solution that was remarkably progressive for the time, though it was also flawed. He wanted to have single occupancy housing for the homeless constructed. This would basically be affordable transitional housing. It's often referred to in the press at the time as a homeless hotel. One quirk is that, and I can only find this in a retrospective mention about the proposal in an article about Boner that came out at the end of his term, that it may have just been housing built exclusively for men. And if it was, I'm not sure that there was a solution pitched for women. If this is the case, it stands out, because when Boner did the piece for Nashville, he mentioned that he felt most saddened by the men who lived on Lower Broad and appeared to find themselves in a situation where they no longer were employable. And if this was the case, Boner didn't appear to have a solution for women, as I said, which is hard not to want to analyze in the context of his overall relationship with women at this point. And so it's a progressive solution, yes, But if it is only for men, there are obviously some issues here. So I found myself oddly excited by discovering Boner's pitch. I was like, okay, this, he, he gets it and he's going to try to do something about it. Uh, but this was before I realized that by the time he did this, and this was relatively early in his, uh, his time as mayor, he'd already burned pretty much all of his political will, which is the sort of thing that one needs when pitching a thing that requires mass community buy-in and, and, and buy-in from your political peers. And so none of this really went anywhere because he had none of the alliances in place that would be needed 
to make it a reality. And that was just the beginning of the end for Boner's progressive policy on the population he claimed to know so much about. Powerless to realizing this bold solution that he just pitched, he would later resort to a second, less desirable solution. But we will touch on that in a bit. In the meantime, though, all those who are living in the streets, they have systems available to them of lunches and dinners that are set up by various churches and institutions. You know, there just is not a lot of help at this time uh, outside of what is being volunteered. Despite Boner's undercover job and his toothless proposal, things are still rough for the homeless as they are today. In 1986, there are a handful of attacks that include five or six men approaching transients in a car, getting out and beating them up. The following year, a fight between a few transients results in one getting stomped, kicked, and stabbed to death. It is a rough scene. It's just rough all around. But over in 2nd Avenue, which had a small boost of minimal development earlier in the decade, things would start moving along quite a bit. By the end of the 80s, there were a few renovation projects that attracted some coverage. The Washington Square office complex was developed, and council members began to remove bans on alcohol on patios, which was a rule that had previously targeted patrons the city found less desirable. Some drunks, the city would decide, are okay, and others are not. Right around the block, 30 years later, a drunk woman will throw a stool at a bouncer. This will happen at her own bachelorette party. She'll say that she did it on a dare. She was presumably one of the respectable drunks. Back in the late 80s, a manager at Laurel's would remark on the emerging competition that was coming up in the neighborhood, saying patrons were finally starting to see options. Rare Foreign and More would open in 1987 and appeal to book fiends in the area. Development had started to move along quite nicely. Broadway would also come to see a number of shifts, one being a renovation of merchants. After the Opry vacated the Ryman in the 1970s, merchants had become a honky-tonk dive, but between a shootout between the police and some escaped convicts and a bunch of other altercations, it wasn't always the most peaceful place to be or visit. The building was set to be demolished, but it was saved at the end of the decade thanks to the efforts of preservationist Ed Stolman, who opened Merchant's Restaurant. A Zagat article says that the restaurant is credited with spurring revitalization of the area, though it seems more likely that while it helped, it was also itself part of the fruits of the revitalization that followed the success of the convention center. It's worth noting, though, that around this time, folks started seeing the ghost of Charlie Keenan, a Confederate soldier who was accused by his love of being a two-timer. This all happened before he called himself. Those ghosts, a a Confederate soldier. Again, I imagine they knew he was a Confederate soldier by what he wore. And and typically, I'm so perplexed by ghost clothes. Are the clothes ghosts? I know I've asked this before on this show, but it's just, it's, it's strongly worth consideration. And I need to know. The high profile Western wear shop belonging to Tony Alamo. Alamo, (laughs) Tony Alamo, the anti-Semitic, anti-Catholic cult leader who embalmed his wife and promised that she'd one day rise from the dead. Well, that closed after Alamo was shut down by the IRS. We will absolutely devote a full episode to him sometime in the Music City Tales series. I cross my heart. We will get a full episode, but you should just know it closed because of some some, uh, IRS issues. Don't screw with the IRS. It's just not worth it. 
Groon Guitars still thrives today. The business opened in 1970 while the Opry was still in operation and uh, when the area was still sort of in good shape before the decline. And then it just was there through the decline. George Groon was actually a fascinating voice in the development that would take place throughout the 80s. He was a critic of the disarray that had taken over Broadway, and he often used his voice to say publicly that something had to be done about it. He advocated for an increased police presence, but also he advocated for uh, paying them accurately and appropriately, which is a little odd to uh, think of a business these days asking for some public service that they also expected to be paid for. Uh, He would welcome boners efforts to clean up the area but he was also one of the lone businesses that supported the idea of investment in the housing that boner proposed um he had a nuanced voice in a way that not a lot of businesses that advocate for uh, a quote-unquote pro-business approach take he seems to be a person who was in favor of interventions for uh the benefit of the area and was willing to invest in them um in that in that way he stands out he very much as much as he's still around today uh running his shop he feels like he is from another more nuanced era The porno shops would start dropping in part due to interference from politicians like Boner, who would really just go out of his way to uh, get in the way of any kind of unsavory business. Um, uh, But also it would change because of the flavor of the area. And uh, arguably, there's still a bit of an appetite for quote unquote unsavory sales among out of town conference visitors. Um, but you know, part of this change took place because of the technological revolution that was happening in home video. Who needs a porno theater? Who needs to go into an area to just, uh, you know, uh, take care of yourself among your closest porno watching brethren when you can just go to a video store and you can do it by yourself and, uh, do it however you want it and do it to whatever flavor you're into. The last of the theaters and porno shops, The Wheel, would close in 1997. It sits on the 400 block of Lower Broad, and it is now where Alan Jackson's Good Time Bar sits. (laughs) Oh, to think of uh, how filthy that place once was (laughs) when you're in there having an Alan Jackson apple teeny or whatever they serve there. Do they what do they have the uh, do they have an Alan Jackson Appletini, please? Somebody let me know. I, I would I need to know immediately. Anyway, think of all the, the action that building has seen before the Alan Jackson Appletini took over in this century. Despite a brief scare regarding ownership and transition of ownership, Tootsie's obviously endured throughout the nineteen eighties and it lives on today. Roberts would do the same. For all the shade it's going to feel like Boner is getting in this episode, I do want to say that curbside recycling is launched while he's in office, and that is great. But otherwise, things are kind of rough. He's off and on with his wife, starting almost immediately. There is speculation that he's having a fling with his former bodyguard, who has seen, I kid you not, shooting pigeons with a BB gun at his home in East Nashville. He's the subject of numerous negative pieces about his time as a congressman, and if he's not going to be able to build in the same manner that Fulton did and leave a similar legacy behind, he will at least do his part to help clean up the neighborhood. Boner's time in office was noteworthy for its heavy-handed policing. He introduced a crime hotline targeted at Lower Broad, and the police would stage large-scale arrests against people on the street, bars and bar owners, anything that was considered undesirable. 
This would happen in bursts, though there was an especially intense push that would run through the end of 1989. A continued crackdown would take place at sex shops and porn theaters, which, as I said above, would begin to drop like flies. The police presence under Boner will become so robust that it starts to scare off actual customers. Some restaurant owners and managers and other folks that maintain places on Lower Broad will complain of police harassment. And Boner's six-month reign of police terror does little to curb the fact that it just turns out nobody likes him. By early 1990, he's maintaining a 20% approval rating. Uh, All the cleanup in the world just can't stop that. In 1990, the Tennessean will profile the new tourist appeal of Lower Broad. There's mention of transients, yes, but they aren't seen as nuisances. They're described, in a way, as folk heroes. Jewel Tabor, who plays into the 1990s honky-tonk scene, is noted for living in a van for the past six years, going back to 1984. He's not homeless, he's a bohemian. The fact is, the homeless are still around, but they've largely been enforced into finding somewhere else to live, somewhere else to be. Quote, problematic homelessness itself has not been taken care of. It's just been pushed out of sight. And there in that article, tourists are noted for coming to Lower Broad as they always had, but now enthusiastically catching some of the charm of the newly revived area. There's no mention of shootouts <laughs> or, or, uh, or uh, police harassment or the other sorts of shady situations we've described that were had taken place throughout that decade. And one tourist from Detroit even mentions that it's so nice to be able to go out without the fear of running into gangs or getting raped. Uh, the 1980s in that way and the legacy of Lower Broad uh, were over in Nashville. This is the birth of the Lower Broad that Robbie will be released into. It's the epicenter of the quote, It City, where in 2013, the police will fight with the Blackfoot Gypsies because a member of the band bumped into one of their cars. It's the Lower Broad where in 2017, a man will get so drunk that he will get arrested for riding the rear bumper of an ambulance. It is the lower broad where a 46-year-old woman will take off her pants in front of the police and get arrested for uh, being drunk and being naked. It is the lower broad where a man, not long ago, will flip a hot dog stand on 5th and Broadway. It was in November of last year. See? Not long at all. Where a few weeks back, an English tourist got real drunk was charged with domestic assault when she began attacking her husband at Honky Tonk Central before going back to their hotel room, cutting his face with a razor, cutting her wrists, and then trying to jump over a railing. You know, there's this Tennessean article from 1987 that I've thought about literally every day since I first came across it. The person quoted in it is Reverend Carl Resenter, who throughout the 1980s, uh, I believe has done a lot of work relating to advocating for the homeless population and is just a liaison to that community. It's about the city starting to issue beer permits for the Nashville Italian Street Fair. Uh, This is controversial to Resenter, and he explains why. The article is called Strings Pulled for High Class Drunks. Downtown street festival organizers, quote, pulled strings for city approval to sell beer to, quote, high-class drunks, while, quote, low-class drunks are expelled from the area, the Nashville Union Missions Director charged yesterday. The Reverend Carl Resenter said Wednesday's Metro Beer Board approval of beer permits for the Italian Street Fair and Market Street Festival, both to be staged within a three-block radius of Lower Broadway, represents, quote, dangerous precedent. 
Everyone's always saying, let's clear out the drunks from Lower Broadway area. And now, what does the city do but bring these high-class drunks in here, he said. In the years and decades that will follow, quote, anti-littering codes and then anti-camping codes will be developed and heavily enforced to ensure the district is free from the sight of those struggling with homelessness and related and resultant ailments. As of today, there are an estimated 20,000 people living out in the streets of Nashville. And in August of last year, a Nashville man was arrested for pissing off the side of Honky Tonk Central, onto the equally drunk but probably unsuspecting crowd below. So, welcome home, Robbie. Welcome home to the It City. That's it for this episode of Nashville Demystified. Again, I'm your host, Alex Steed. You've been listening to an installment of Music City Tales from the 1980s from our mini-series, by that name. Uh, This is your Lower Broad installment, or this is the second half of the Lower Broad installment. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Cameron Davidson for taking care of all things sound based on what I send to him every week. He always has his work cut out for him and he always makes everything sound so great. Thank you, Cameron. Thanks to We Own This Town for having us on their network and to Knack Factory for making the show possible. Again, I think next week we'll likely pause this series to talk about the tornado in an episode. We'll talk about this one and we'll talk about the one that touched down in 1998. Speaking of which, uh, I know you're already doing this, but take extra good care of each other out there. Be kind, be generous. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.